Good morning. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Jesse. Glad you're here visiting us, and we're thankful to have you. We, um, we uh, are going to be in John chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you want to make sure you're, you're looking along with us and studying along with us, just raise your hand and keep your hand up. And one of these lovely gentlemen here would love to, to let you grab a Bible, use one of these Bibles, take it home with you, whatever you feel necessary. We've been in the Gospel of John for <clears throat> almost a year. And uh, I was talking with Mavis this morning. Those of you who don't know, Mavis is uh, uh, one of our um, wisest uh, people in church. She's, she's one of the oldest uh, people that we have, and she's been a longtime resident of Truckee. And, and um, she, she asked a year ago for a, a new Bible. And so I purchased a bunch of Bibles for the bookstore for her. She didn't like any of them, and so she didn't buy any of them. And um, we were talking about uh, her Bible this morning because it's just fallen apart. And she said, well, if you, if you don't get over John soon, the entire gospel is going to fall out of my Bible. So you need to move along a little quicker. Um, so the game plan, so you know, is we've got this week and, and two more weeks in John. So three total, including this week. We'll have a couple guest speakers at the end of May. Uh, and then for our summer series, we'll be in the book of Jonah. So be ready to, to, uh, to launch into that for summertime, for those of you who won't be traveling and moving along. And you also, uh, in, um, uh, in addition to you know, our care for the Bible, we're teaching on our Sunday night series, uh, our Prothumia series, which is what we do on Sunday nights at 5.30 p.m. We do these blocks of, of going deeper. Uh, right now, we're, we're in a study of bibliology, and Brad Beers, who's a, a great teacher, is teaching that tonight at 5.30 p.m., and he's going to be answering a couple questions. I don't know if you've ever had these questions, but one is, um, how do we have the Bible we have? So how did it come into existence? Why is it that we use this uh, instead of something else, like um, different literature and things like that? <clears throat> in addition to that, he's also um, going to be talking about uh, the differences in translations. So I don't know if you've ever wondered why is it that some use an ESV, which is what I typically use, English Standard Version, or an NASB, which Wayne has used faithfully for, for a long time, or why some might even believe while the King James Version is the only anointed English version one is to use, or the NIV. So uh, we're going to look at that tonight. I want to encourage you to come. It'll be a good time, and we can uh, learn some things together. Uh, with that said, <clears throat> because we do care deeply about the Word of God here, uh, if you're able to this morning, I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read from John 19, verse 25, uh, as we want to honor God's word and standing together during the reading of it. So again, if you're able to stand this morning, please do so. And we're going to read through the rest of uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 25. So last week, we, um, we went in pretty deep in, in the crucifixion and what Jesus endured. And uh, I want to uh, kind of go back on some of the stuff a little bit and and into some further territory this morning. Verse 25. Jesus is hanging from the cross at this moment. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put the sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We ask, Father, that you would minister to us. May your words be clear and our distractions few. Give us the ability, Lord, to be comforted, convicted, and moved by who you are this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> um, we're going to, this morning, I, I, um, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction than normal, but we'll still be pretty much in, in the text that we're in. I, uh, I, on occasion, I keep a little, I have an app, you know, one of those apps that, because there's an app for that, there's an app for everything, um, where I keep uh, ideas, sermon ideas, and just different things I think God might be leading down the road. I don't always do everything that's in that to-do list, but one, one of the things that I've placed in there uh, probably over a year ago, well over a year ago, was to preach through the seven sayings of the cross. And we're going to do that this morning. In part, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Several of those words are here. And we're going to go into some of the other Gospels and look at them, and then we'll spend a little bit more time in depth in the particular words that Jesus speaks here. And they're kind of known as holy words. I don't know if any of you have ever spent time with someone as they were passing. I actually did that earlier a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, and to hear or to listen to what somebody speaks before they pass, it's, it's kind of a, a big deal, right? What are the last words of? In fact, I remember uh, several months ago I saw an article somewhere that said the, you know, uh, certain superstars that have passed over the last five years. What were their last words? What did, what did they say before dying? What would you say before you die? And so these words are looked at as important. They're looked at as holy, and there's, there's seven of them, and we're going to get into them here in a moment. We've got to paint the backdrop of what's happening here. Skip a couple of these here for a moment. Uh, in verses 31 through 33, we're told that there is a request made as Jesus is hanging on the cross for his legs to be broken. Oftentimes, victims, when they were crucified, would last on the cross up to as long as three days. And then after uh, dying on the cross, Romans would typically leave them on the cross for several weeks. Just as a reminder on that very common road that people would pass, 
You know, don't, don't cross Caesar. Don't do anything wrong. Stay in check. But the Jews had a law. And that law was that on the Sabbath, that one would not remain on the Sabbath. So the Jews request that the legs be broken in order for the victim to no longer prolong their anguish. But they would have uh, no longer the ability to support their weight and, and their lungs would crush and they would eventually they would suffocate and, and die. And by law, the Romans said that by law, uh, not the Romans, I'm sorry, the Jews had a law in addition to that, that, if, that once someone died, they had to be buried on the exact same day. So the Jews here aren't worried about prolonging the suffering. What they're worried about is, is the Passover. They want to celebrate the Passover. And remember, the Passover is a celebration that the Jews uh, celebrated that, that God passed over their sins uh, during the days of Pharaoh in captivity, that they would be set free. And Jesus is the Passover. And John makes note of this. In fact, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, teaches us that um, when the Jews uh, had a sacrifice, that sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. There had to be no blemish. Exodus 12, 46 makes a specific note that the Passover sacrifice shall not have any broken bones. So Jesus uh, is on the cross. He's already died, so his bones are, no long, are not going to be broken, just, both to fulfill prophecy, but also John is making note to us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And then we're told instead of the broken legs, his side is pierced with a spear, and that blood and water flowed from his side. John makes note of this. In fact, he, he tells us, he says, this is, this is true. He, he's telling us that he's, a, he, he, he's an eyewitness. He's, he's there. He's seeing this actually happen. And this is also to fulfill prophecy. Scripture tells us, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So there's this blood and water that spills. One pastor actually takes note of this. Um, he says it this way, the fact that water, though came out with blood, is interesting because it shows, according to some medical experts, that Jesus died of cardiac failure. It is post-mortem evidence when you have that kind of gushing forth of fluid, serum and pericardial fluid, boy, I struggled with that one on the first service, and that the pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, because of the process of crucifixion, puts such pressure on the heart that Jesus died of heart failure. And what's interesting about this is morticians call this the broken heart syndrome. They have noted that when a person is under great, great stress, like when they're older and they find out that their husband or wife dies, that they will sometimes die soon after. And it's this kind of pressure in the heart that they call it a broken heart syndrome. The pastor goes on to say, I found this interesting because if this is post-mortem evidence that Jesus' heart was crushed by the pericardial fluid, it would not be an inaccurate to say that Jesus died of a broken heart. I mean, imagine that he who has been through what he has been through, not just physically, but spiritually, the weight of all the sins of humanity ever committed, past, present, and future, are pressing in on him, and he's experiencing the full measure of the wrath of Almighty God. So this broken heart syndrome, this showing this gushing of fluid, teaches us that, that Jesus was brokenhearted 
He was under great stress. In fact, it's interesting. Jim came to me. You guys know Jim Matthias, most of you, and does some of the artwork around here. And he said, you know, he, he was telling me after the service, he spent the years from 17, age 17, to the age 32, drinking anywhere between 18 to 24 beers a day in addition to, alcohol, to uh, hard alcohol in the morning. So God saved, I don't know if you've ever heard his testimony, but God saved Jim from a very radical lifestyle. And he said that, that at some point in time, he ended up having this, this issue where water was pressing around his heart. He had to go to the emergency room. And he said the only, the only kind of relief he could get was to lay, and he was in the back office here, you know, big old tall Jim spread out on the counter. He's like, do I had to lay like this? And I just was going, oh, oh. And he said the pain was excruciating. He painted a picture for me just saying, just sharing with me, like what Jesus was going through is beyond anything we could think or imagine. Now, part of the, the Mishnah, which provides guidelines for testing a valid sacrifice, actually teaches the Jews that when a sacrifice is made, the quality of the sacrifice was often measured by the amount of blood that comes forth from that particular sacrifice. Jesus is the great Passover. He sheds the blood. He's the perfect lamb. No bones have been broken. Now, the other side to this is that many theologians believe that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, that, that John is showing us a double meaning here. John is, is an, uh, just an artist. The Gospel of John just beautifully paints for us a lot of double meanings and contrasts and things like that. And many theologians believe that what we're seeing in the piercing of, of Jesus' side is to show us that as, as Eve came from the side of Adam, so now the church is being brought forth through the side of Christ. And that the church is being birthed through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we come to this place where Jesus speaks. We're not going to get to the John ones quite yet, but here are the seven in front of you. We're going to dive into this for a few moments and just look at the words that Jesus spoke on his deathbed. And there's seven of them, and they're traditionally known by these sayings here. Just a quick way to look at them. Forgiveness, salvation, relationship, abandonment, distress, triumph, and reunion. We're told as Jesus hangs on the cross in Luke 23, verse 34. I have all of the reference there, so if you're quick at turning in your Bible, you can look at these references. If you're quick on your app, you can do that as well. Luke 23, verse 34, forgiveness. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they cast lots to divide his garment. John alludes to that, that, that they casted lots to divide Jesus' garments. Now, I don't know if you're able to step back for a moment, but do you think that these are words that were proclaimed from the cross that the Roman soldiers would hear on a regular basis? Is this a, you think this is a common thing for the Romans to hear? While someone is hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. I would argue, I'm not sure, I, I don't think that soldiers heard that on a regular basis. And yet here's Jesus crying out from the cross for forgiveness, not, not just for the action, but for their ignorance. And I hope this morning you find great comfort in knowing that Jesus forgives you for the sins you know you committed. He forgives you for the things you know you should have done but you didn't do. And he also forgives you for all of the things that you're not even aware you need forgiveness of. Isn't that good news? If you're married, that should be good news. Right? 
You ever look at your wife or your spouse and go, you're mad at me? Yes, I am, they say. And you go, why? And they say, you know. <laughs> and you say, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry? Well, what are you sorry for? I don't know. <laughs> Jesus forgives you for all of the ways that you, you don't measure up. This is tremendous good news. The Bible tells us in Romans, though, that, that no one is without excuse. That In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, that, that nature itself declares that there's a God. That, that when you walk outside, you should see through creation that a God exists. This is the opposite of those who, who would argue scientifically that, well, you know, we, we evolved. And one of the arguments of evolution is, is that in evolution, you can see that there's similarities, there's, there's likeness from one species to another species. Well, good theologians will tell you that the reason that there's likeness and there's similarities is because we have the same artist. He's created all of these things. And when you walk outside, you see that there is a design because there's a designer. So number one is Jesus' extension of forgiveness to even those who have wrongfully abused and murdered Christ. The good news to this is that the, ex the, the, the extension of salvation, the invitation of salvation is to the worst of the worst. Now, metaphorically, all of us have placed Jesus on the cross. But literally, none of you have actually driven the nails into his hands and feet. And so, if that extension of, of salvation is offered to the world, it's offered to you as well. Remember, John has written this entire gospel. The entire gospel is written that people who do not believe in Jesus would believe in Jesus. And that people who do believe in Jesus would be strengthened in their belief of Jesus. Hopefully you've been strengthened over the last year in regards to the goodness of Christ. Number two, salvation. Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. You remember, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Another prophecy fulfilled by, by Christ being placed in the center with a thief on his left and a thief on his right. Two criminals who were hanging on the tree. And we see a contrast in those criminals in Luke. One of them, one of those criminals says, are you not the Christ? Aren't you the great powerful Messiah? Save yourself and us. That's one remark, right? That's one way to react to Jesus. You're all powerful. Get me out of my tough situation. Oftentimes that's people's view of salvation, isn't it? I'll believe in God as long as he gets me out of my difficult situation. This is this man. I don't want to die on the cross. Save me. Save yourself. Then the other guy, he actually recognizes who God is. Listen to his words. He says to the other thief, and from Luke again, chapter 23, do you not fear God? Don't you have a fear of God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today. You'll be with me in paradise. But this is a great view of salvation. The, just so you understand something, this man, we don't know anything about him on the cross, but he has got better theology than most Christians. He knows and understands something about Jesus that some people never get and they never understand. 
First of all, he doesn't complain about his suffering. He admits that he deserves suffering. We justly deserve being on the cross. He understands that he's guilt-ridden. If you will, it's confession. That's, that's the first step to salvation, is it not? To confess that you are a sinner and to admit that you need salvation. But in addition to this, he has a fear of God. He tells him, hey, why are you rambling about this guy? You, don't you have a fear of God? He admits his wrong, he admits his guilt, but he also acknowledges Jesus' righteousness. He says, do you not see we deserve the cross and this man has done nothing wrong? Part of salvation is understanding, right? Our iniquity, our, our shortcomings, where we fail. And it's also recognizing the goodness and the beauty and the splendor, the perfectness, the holiness, as the Bible says, of Jesus Christ. He's, he's done nothing wrong. And then here's the part where, where he understands something theologically that I think is just completely beautiful. He acknowledges that Jesus is the king. You see his words? Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that cool? He's recognizing what we shared a few weeks ago when we talked about that Jesus before Pilate, that Jesus is a king of an upside-down kingdom, a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but of a higher world, a higher realm. And he recognizes you're king. And so Jesus then says to him, today you will see paradise. What do you, isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture? For those who have eyes to see, one pastor says, here Jesus has power on the cross, a power of love that makes him king over all his tormentors. He's not only good, he's powerful. Number three, relationship. This is the third word here Jesus speaks, the third saying from the cross. Chapter 19 of John, the passage we're in, verses 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I want you to understand something. If you read this and you're understanding it and studying it, you, you can see there's, there's five people at the foot of the cross. Four of them are women. One is a man, and that man is John. And this, isn't this the case in ministry? You just have to admit it. said it last week, bears repeating. Women are always the first to jump up and serve. They are the most zealous, and they are the most dedicated, and they're the most willing to run to the feet of Jesus. It's always the dude. It's always the guy that's difficult to get around. I mean, even in the Garden of Eden, right? The woman takes a bite of the apple, and, and uh, what, is, what does Adam say? Did you, God, this is the woman you gave me. He blamed it on God. He blame-shifted away from himself to God, yet it was Adam who was passively hanging out in the garden, not being active and leading and guiding and loving and taking care of his wife. So there's just a strong encouragement here to look at the foot of the cross and at least, at least ask and petition towards you men in the room to be a man of God, an example of God. And maybe it isn't just in serving, but maybe it's in the passion for Jesus Christ. I find absolutely nothing more powerful than when a man finally steps up and passionately wants to serve Jesus. 
It's so refreshing. I'm not taking anything away, though, from women. Because it's, it's oftentimes the women who keep the heartbeat of the church going. But I think even the women in the room would say, yeah, give me a few dudes to step up. Right? Any ladies in here not want more of that? Right? And if you're here with your spouse this morning, you just maintain looking forward and you... I've been there. <clears throat> so we see at the cross these, these women, there's this relationship. The, the, traditional, the traditional Jewish call would be the one that should take care of Mary would be Mary's brothers. I mean, I'm sorry, Mary's sons. But they're not there. The only one that's there is John. So Jesus, desiring in this moment to take care of his, his mother, looks to John and tells John, now she's your mother. And, and there's tradition that, that teaches, it's not in the Bible, it's, it's, it's extracurricular, so we don't know if it's true or not, that John actually took Mary into his home because at this point it's believed that Joseph has passed along. So, so it's possible here that Mary's a widow. She needs to be cared for. Her brothers aren't stepping up to the plate. So the one that Jesus loved and John is going to step up to the plate. And tradition teaches that it's very possible that John took her in to his own home and cared for her until she too passed. Remember the prophecy here. Remember what Mary is going through at the foot of the cross. Luke chapter 2 tells us that, that when Jesus was young, that, that she went to the temple with Joseph, and, and, and there was a guy there in the temple by the name of Simeon. And Simeon had been, been told by the Holy Spirit that, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, until he saw the Christ. Basically what Luke tells us is there's this guy, this older guy, who's been waiting his whole life to hold and to touch and to feel and to see the Messiah. Holy Spirit told him he wouldn't die until he saw it. And then Mary and Joseph, his stepfather, Jesus' stepfather, walks into the temple. Simeon sees him filled with the Holy Spirit. He knows, he knows that this is the Messiah. His time is coming. And listen to what it says in the story here. Simeon takes him in to now dedicate Jesus to God the Father. And listen to this baby dedication. Verse 32 of Luke 2. A light for the revelation about Jesus. He will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles an extension of salvation beyond the Jews. To any of us who are not Jew, we now have the ability to come to know Jesus, Gentiles. And it says, for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what Simeon was saying about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, here's the prophecy. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon prophesied to his mother. Imagine if I did that baby dedication. Your child is going to break your heart. Let's pray. <laughs> but he's prophesying that Jesus will die for the rising up. It says in Luke that many hearts would be revealed, that your heart would be awakened. It's language for you'll finally know your true identity and who, who you're supposed to be in God. And Mary's now at this cross seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. But I don't think that that was bringing her tremendous comfort in the moment. I am sure Mary was brokenhearted. She is in tears. Oftentimes in Jewish tradition when someone died, for instance, in that culture, you know, we live in a culture at times where we, we hide death and we cover it up, and, and we put a veneer on it. But in that culture, they would, they'd actually hire professional wailers, professional criers, 
to make a scene. We saw this actually in, in Lazarus, and, and there's many crying outside of the tomb, and they're wailing, and they're moaning, and they're weeping. And Jesus comes and says, why? Lazarus, come forth. Jesus doesn't have this comfort at this moment, though. And Mary doesn't. One pastor here says it like this in this moment. Here is Jesus during the most painful part of his life before his death, and he's concerned about somebody else. He's thinking about how can I honor my mother and my father? How can I show honor to her? This woman who birthed me, I want to make sure that she's taken care of. I want to make sure that one of my own will look after her. So rather than thinking of himself, he's thinking about others. Church, isn't this a beautiful example for us that when you're going through suffering, don't focus on self, focus on someone else? Isn't it, I don't know if you've ever had chronic pain. But chronic pain does something that, that really is it's a horrible thing. If you're in chronic pain, it forces you to think about nothing else but your own pain. I shared with the first service last week. I don't think I shared it with you this week, but we had some friends from the church over for dinner, and I stepped on a, a good piece of glass that almost went through the entirety of my foot. And I bled all over the place. Dinner party's over, right? I'll go upstairs. I've got to clean up the blood. I'm dripping blood everywhere. Like Dinner party, literally, it's time for everyone to go home. Isn't it interesting? I, I broke my pinky several years ago, and, and how just one small part of your body can cause you such tremendous pain, just one small part. And all of a sudden, everything's about that. Right? Those of you who have children and they get hurt, you know. Life stops. Everything ends. And chronic pain has a way of, of just forcing everything inward. I, I remember when I, went, when I broke my pinky, I broke it in such a way that I had to have pinky rehab. I didn't even know there was a such thing. When they told me I needed rehab, I was like, well, no, I don't. No, you're, seriously, you need rehab. Okay. There's nothing like being in an office for an hour doing this. That's just one small body part. But here's the lesson. The lesson is, is in pain and in suffering. To suffer well means not to focus on yourself, but to serve others. And then you have number four, abandonment. Matthew 27, verse 46 records this, as well as Mark 15, 34. It says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. He's, he's pointing everyone around that cross, anybody who knows the Bible, anyone who knows Old Testament, look at Psalm 22 and look at what is happening to me. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. But he's telling us something. There's this tension here that, that Jesus, though he never, never was separated from the love of God, never ceased to be God, was still dealing with a tremendous amount of forsakenness. He was tasting our sin and our shame and our guilt, all that is evil in the world. He's absorbing it all. As we've quoted on time and time again, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God. Which leads us to number five, distress. He says, I thirst. Some believe that Jesus is tasting the, the very pit of hell, the heat of hell, all that is ugly, all that is burning, all that is evil. And he's, he's saying, I thirst, that he's feeling the pain. We're told in this passage in John that he was offered wine. Now, it's interesting to note a couple things. First of all, this is the second time he's been offered wine. The first time, he was offered wine with gall. Gall was a, a medicine that, that would help 
relieve pain. Now that particular moment when he was offered the wine with gall, Jesus rejected it. He knew that he needed to have as clear as mind as possible, that he had to experience all of it, not be numb to it, but, but understand it. I have pastored people along the years when they've lost a loved one, and one of the things that I've said to them is, don't numb yourself. Don't go to drugs. Don't go to alcohol. Don't, don't numb yourself. You've got to feel this. You've got to experience it. You've got to go through it so you don't delay the healing. This is what Jesus is doing. He's not delaying the pain, the excruciation. He's, he's absorbing it all. But this time, he's offered wine, and instead of gall, it's mentioned that the wine that was given to him was on the branch of hyssop or a hyssop branch. The reason this is important is because John is try, still trying to drive home that Jesus is the great Passover. So if you remember when the angel of death goes through the land of Pharaoh to take the firstborn, they're instructed so that they are passed over so they won't die. They're told to put blood on the top of the door and on the sides of their doors like a cross. And they are to apply that blood with a hyssop branch. Jesus is the Passover. John is, is driving this home. Though he's in his distress, Jesus is emptying himself out so that our thirst will be quenched and that the wrath of God and the effects of sin will pass over us, which leads to number six, his triumph. Where Jesus simply says in chapter 19 of John, verse 30, it is finished. Aren't these tremendous words? You know, the words, it is finished. I came across this during my study this week. There are four ways that this Greek word was used in Jesus' day that show us a different facet to what Jesus is saying. That Greek word is, uh, if, you're, if you know Greek really well, I'm not a Greek expert, so don't look to me as an expert of Greek because I'm not, nor am I an expert of how to say it. So if I, again, I usually say, if I say it with enough confidence, you'll believe it's the right way. The Greek word that's used here is tetelestai. Any Greek experts here this morning? Laura? Is that about right? It's fine, she says. I feel super confident to move forward. Oh, I like that. So because we weren't there, Zach's letting me know that no one really knows. So you can't correct me. I say this however the heck I want at this point. You've given me more confidence. So the word, the, there's four ways that it was used. One way was when a servant was told to go do the master's work. When a master said, servant, go accomplish this job. Servant, go clean the room, for instance. Once the servant had completed the task for the master, he would come back and would simply say, it is finished, it's done. So in one way, we see that Jesus is the great servant of God the Father, and at this point, he's accomplished his master's work. Another way it was used in the Old Testament, for instance, was it was the word that the priest would use when actually looking at a sacrifice and making sure that it was perfect and that there were no broken bones, he would say, it is finished. A third way that it was used was for artists. When an artist had spent many painstaking hours completing a painting, or a sculpture. And once that artist was done, they would step back and say, it is finished. Much of Scripture is this way, I think. It's beautifully written. 
But it isn't until you see Jesus that the Old Testament makes any sense at all. You get pieces of God and parts of God. In fact, I've heard some people say, man, it seems like the God in the Old Testament is a different God than the God in the New Testament. That Jesus had a bad day in the Old Testament, took a nap for a few years in Malachi, and came back, and now all of a sudden he's a much happier Jesus. Some people have argued that, that they're two different gods. Some of this has even come out in, in, in the way that people are translating the Bible, that, that you have to retranslate much of the Old Testament through the cross, that because Jesus is so gracious, so that God didn't cause something like Sodom and Gomorrah. But it isn't until you see that we deserve, we are all the Sodom and Gomorrah, we deserve the wrath, that we deserve punishment. Right? Well, oftentimes, like when we see here in a, a few moments, you see that Joseph of Arimathea comes to bury Jesus, so does Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes at night, and many are, are surprised and, and say, well, how could, is Nicodemus someone who saved? He came at night. We don't know why he came at night. He, he maybe was a busy guy, or maybe he came in secret. We should just be marveled at all that Nicodemus came at all as a Jewish leader. We should not marvel that people go to hell. We should marvel that people go to heaven. Because Sometimes people will say those kind of things, like, you know, th- this guy who's hanging on the cross, for instance. Take comfort in this. Seriously, this is comforting for for me. And I know it'll be comforting for many of you, and some of you have issue with it. We don't know this man's life on the cross. We don't know know what his full life was like. We know he's a criminal, so we know he committed some some heinous kind of crime that deserved crucifixion. He's gone his almost entire life now as a sinner, and he's hanging on the cross, and Jesus extends to him the offer of salvation. Some people have a hard time wrapping their minds around the fact that you can go your entire life not admitting who God is, not acknowledging God, not submitting to God, lie on your deathbed and finally be awakened to the grace of God. And for that person, they're welcomed into paradise. Those who have problem with it would say, well, that's just not fair. What is fair? Nobody wants fair. Trust me. Nobody wants fair. Fair is eternal separation for every single human being. Grace is anybody getting saved at all. So God is in this moment showing us all of the New Testament and and how it all comes together and how it all points to the goodness of God, that God has always been a gracious God. If you think about it, even when you think about the Ten Commandments, how many of you are doing well at those? You know what came before the Ten Commandments? Freedom from Pharaoh. Grace always comes before law. God always gives his love first, gives freedom first. And then he says, okay, okay, now that you've received goodness and kindness and love, walk in perfection for your own good and for my glory. So he steps back. Jesus is telling us it's finished. The artwork is done. It's completed. And the fourth way, it was used by merchants to declare that an item which was purchased is now paid in full. You owe nothing. There's no more debt. That's grace. Grace is knowing that God has saved you, not because of you, but in spite of you. And now that you're saved, there's nothing you have to do to keep your salvation. Because it's been finished. It's been paid for. There's nothing to work off. As that great song says, Jesus paid it all. To him I owe. My sin had left this crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It is washed away, all my sin and all my shame. And where before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips 
she'll still repeat, Jesus paid it all. I don't know if you have debt this morning, but if you have a large amount of debt, imagine the freedom of not having that debt any longer. Maybe it's a house payment. Even if you have a house payment, maybe you rent, maybe you don't have a house payment, you rent. What would it be like to not have to pay rent? Especially in Truckee, <laughs> right? Great relief. So it's finished. And then the seventh reunion. Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his laugh. He breathed his last. We had a memorial service here on Monday. Probably close to 500 people here. Memorial services are, are one of those opportunities that, that really is just a great opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ because everyone is thinking about their, their eternal destiny. Right? Like if I, if, I, if I came to you and I said, hey, listen, uh, if you drink this Diet Coke right now, you're going to die. How many of you would drink it? Congratulations. Well, one of you. You get to go home and see Jesus. Sorry, I like your thinking. Most of us, though, we would say, if I'm going to drink or I'm going to smoke this cigarette and it's going to kill me after I do it, most of us say, no, we're not going to do it. But, but most of us are okay with dying later, right? Well, I'm okay with Diet Coke as long as I can drink it for the next 20 years, and then I'll die of Diet Coke in 20 years. But in a memorial service, you're faced with your mortality. Whether you like it or not, it's uncomfortable. You're faced with it. And so there's this great opportunity to preach to preach that. And so Jesus, on his, Jesus is here, and, and he's about to die. And he says, as he's about to die, as he's facing his own mortality, he says, I give up my spirit. I place my spirit into your hands. I don't know what you're going to be thinking when you die, but hopefully you're thinking that. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Can I just share with you this morning that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when you die, you will be welcomed into the open arms of Jesus Christ. He is waiting for you patiently and enduringly. He's waiting for you with open arms. But again, there's some that believe there's double meaning here. That Jesus isn't only looking up and saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's also looking down at those he's about to commission to the church and to his fellow believers, and he's looking down at them and saying, now I commit my spirit to you. Now I'm going to give you my power, the same power that's going to raise me from the dead. There's a great passage that, that, that says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, where Jesus is ministering. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the broken, to free those who are captive. The, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Whatever God has called you to, the, the Lord's Spirit is on you, and he's with you. Maybe this morning you're dealing with chronic pain. The Spirit of the Lord is with you. His arms are with you. He's behind you. Maybe you're dealing with debt. The Spirit of the Lord is with you. He, he's behind you. Maybe you're dealing with a rebellious kid. The Spirit of the Lord is, is upon you. Maybe you have a family member that, that's dying or you're not reconciled with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Maybe you have an addiction that you just can't seem to get rid of. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Maybe there's a new ministry you want to run with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Maybe there's a worker that you, you're working with and, and you just don't like him. But the Lord tells you to love your enemies and you're just, no, I don't want to do that today, Lord. He's with you. Parents, he's with you. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon you to raise your children. Grandparents, the Spirit of the Lord is with you. No matter what the fault is, no matter how difficult it is, the Spirit of the Lord is with you. And he has looked down at his church and he has poured out his blood and he's poured out his Spirit upon us to accomplish his good work. You got a bad attitude? The Spirit of the Lord is with you. You got something you want to change? You got a marriage that's difficult? You got a husband or wife that isn't coming to church with you? The Spirit of the Lord with you. And he hangs on the cross and he says these things to a church that needs to know that it is not weak and it cannot be pushed around by culture. We are a living, breathing, thriving community with great power underneath our wings. Do you believe that? Let me ask it again. You don't have to say it out loud. It's just for yourself. Do you believe it? Remember, John was written that you would believe. See, this is, this is where we say, Lord, send your spirit into the room and drive this home to me so that I can accomplish the things that you've called me to accomplish. Verses 38 through 42. We're told after Jesus breathes his last voice and the blood and water flow that a, a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, comes and this is a man, he was rich. We're told he's a disciple in Matthew 27. He's, he's respected and he's looking for God's kingdom, we're told, in Mark 15. And we're also told that he was a righteous man. I, I find it interesting to note he was a secret believer because he feared the Jews. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a secret believer. But for whatever reason, he, he comes to Pilate and he says, let me bury him. And, and, and it's believed that, that he was buried in this rich man's tomb, that Jesus was buried within this place within the garden. But then Nicodemus shows up again in verse 39. Remember, a religious guy came at night quite possibly because he was afraid of being found out. And he brings 75 pounds of aloes, sandalwood-type perfume, and embalming powder. Just so you know, this amount was reserved for kings and royalty. It's extravagant. And the custom of the Jews in their burial, as John alludes to, is to, to take a cloth and bound the, the person who had passed separately in their arms, their torso, and their legs, and their head. And they would embalm them in these aloes and these spices. And it would create a jelly-like substance that would grow kind of hard. This is important because when we get into the resurrection, that when we see that the, the clothes have been taken off and bound or, or set off to the side nice and neatly, it, it shows how amazing that was. It wasn't like he broke out of the shell. He unwrapped himself patiently. But as he was buried and laid in that tomb, it led us to a Saturday. Friday, the crucifixion. Saturday, alone. Right? The women, we don't know where they've gone. We're told later that Mary Magdalene shows up very early. We're going to get to that in John 20 next week. But that Saturday was tough. Anybody ever had a Saturday like that? Waiting, wondering, doubting. So I thought, what is the encouragement from the passage in Jesus' words? We go back. We go back just for a few moments and we'll close. We go back to the words to Mary. We go back to the words that Jesus says to Mary. And that's God's tremendous care for his church. 
Right? Think of this for a moment. If, if Jesus can provide for his own mother in weakness and humility, how much more can he provide for his church in glory? You remember the passage where Jesus is pressed around by the crowds? There's many people pressed around him, and the disciples come, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, your mom, you know, your blood and, and your brothers are requesting for you. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, well, who are my mother and my sisters but those who believe in the word of God and do them? He, he's extending family. Jesus has died on the cross to make you a brother of Christ, to be in the family of God. So the same provision that's given to his mother is even greater to you as his church. Jesus cares for you as family. He wants to provide for you. And he can do so effectively and efficiently. But I think one of the most beautiful things here is this shows us this care. It shows us the tremendous family that God has given us in his church. Who's supposed to be taking care of Mary again? Her sons. They're curiously absent in the moment. So Jesus all of a sudden does what Jesus does. He, he makes people who aren't family, family. You'll find many of you who've been saved long enough, you, you can relate to this, that you can find people in the church that you end up closer with, more transparent with, than people that you are actually related to. Because God has a way of binding us together as family. And we've said it on many occasions, but this is your family. And so Jesus tells John, I, I have a job for you. I'm commissioning something for you. You've, you've got work to do. You've got to care for my family. And can I just say this morning that by extension, that Jesus has shared that same encouragement to us as a church. He's cared for us. He's adopted us into his family. Now it's time to be a part of the family. For those of you who don't know what I mean, some of you know exactly what I mean, but right, if you, if you go over for a Thanksgiving dinner with your blood relatives, there's going to be some weirdness there, right? There's a good chance, you know, Uncle Tommy who shows up once a year, and, you know, Uncle Tommy, he's a little bit weird. But at least, you know, when he's there, Uncle Tommy contributes to something, whether it's conversation, he contributes conversation or humor or or, or whether it's someone, the one family member who washes dishes or the one person who's got to cook the turkey, right? My grandfather, every, every uh, special holiday, he makes the clam dip. That's his contribution every year. And it, trust me, I, about 15 pounds right here is from clam dip alone. Good stuff. That's his contribution. But you can't show up to Thanksgiving and just consume and not interact and not be with the family, and expect to have a family experience. It's the same way in God's family. The church was never intended for you to show up, to be entertained, and to walk out of here and say, boy, that was great. Thank you. I'm excited about our children's ministry in several months launching into doing children's church at the 830 service. We've got six new volunteers, I think it is, Joe. Six? Don't look so happy about it. Six, <laughs> and um, because it shows us that, and it's pressing into our church that, you know what? You can't just consume. This isn't Amazon. This isn't Disneyland. This isn't Target. This isn't Costco. You don't browse up and down the shelves and say, I'll take some of this and I'll take some of that. This is family. This is 
you contribute. You've got something to contribute to God's family. And what I love about it is, is sometimes it's just relationship. It's not just serving a children's church. And it's not just tithing. It's not just greeting. We had a new gal greet today. She was like, I asked to serve, so here I am. She's handing out bulletins. But sometimes it's just pure relationship because in the family experience, there's mothers and there's fathers and there's sons and there's grandkids. Those of you who are older, you've got something to contribute to those who are younger. My wife and I, we have a tendency to, to desire and to look at certain people who've raised their kids well and they're already off on college and they're, they're doing something, right? And the, the one thing they all tell us is, enjoy it, Jesse, because it goes fast. And I keep thinking, When? Because it sure feels slow. (laughs) But those encouragements of enjoying family and enjoying the moment and enjoying kids, enjoying the sound of kids, we need that. And some of you have that to offer. Some of you who are older, you need some of our younger people to run around like a little bit, a little loose. To remind you of what it's like to, to not know what you're doing and to not have the maturity that you should have. And to just kind of, in a way, recklessly do stuff for Jesus Christ. To push you to take a step of faith. You need it. You need the young zealousness to remind you what it's like to just go for it, man. And some of you are like, well, let them push you a little bit. I remember people used to say to me, you know, I've been here long enough to hear almost everything. Oh, Jesse's young. I'd say, I'm working on it. Every day, as time passes, I keep getting one step closer to whatever not young is. (laughs) I don't know if I've reached it yet. Someone called me a young man in the first service. All right, I'll take it for, I'm at the place right now where I'll take it for as long as I can. Jesus purchased the church with his blood. He commissioned the one he loved who was not family to do the things of a family. And I want to encourage us to do the same. To take heart and courage that God's spirit is behind us and that he's empowered us to not be a weak, you know, little flickering dim light in Truckee, but a bright shining light for his glory. And for us in the church to also look inward and say, you know what? I love you and your family. And there's some weird family members in our family, isn't there? There's a few Uncle Tommies. I don't know why I said, I don't have an Uncle Tommy, just so we're clear. But we've had some weird family members at our gatherings and you still love them. And sometimes you just only love them for the entertainment they provide, right? Thank God that he and his goodness has invited us into something much bigger than just entertainment. You don't need more consumerism. You, you, you don't need more things to purchase from, right? You don't need something that says, oh, you know what? Hey, we go to the church because there's awesome worship. We go because there's a great children's program. Uh, we go because of its location. We go because the preaching's good. Nah, once you're here, and when new people come into town all the time, they got to find out where they're going to go to church, and we let people figure that out. But once they've committed... You're here because we're family. Are we perfect? No way. Are we family? Yeah. I'm down with that. Let's pray. Lord, um, I ask that you would uh, take the last song here as we sing to um, solidify truth into our heart, to drive home this reality, Lord, that uh, we are one with you, that your spirit is behind us, Lord, that the Spirit of God is upon me and upon our church to do the will that you've called us to, the work that you've called us to, to glorify you 
And Lord, you've also um, given us the power to love one another and be family. I pray that however that plays out for each person, because I, I know there's a tendency to say, oh, it looks like so-and-so, or it looks like this other person, or it looks like what Jesse does, or what Brad does, or, or what Pam does, or, or to look at some example and say, well, that's what it looks like. I pray, Lord, they, they would allow themselves to, to see that there's all sorts of beautiful, nuanced ways to contribute. Just as, Lord, as you've given me the service of preaching and teaching, Lord, for this church, my service to this church, Lord, is to study your word and to try to proclaim it as clear as possible to encourage and strengthen our church and to bring conviction when necessary. But, Lord, not everyone's called to that. And I I pray that, that each one of us right now would just say, God, show me how to contribute to the strength of this particular family here. And if it's helping in children's church, great. If it's evangelism, great. If it's relationships, praise God. If it's to clean up around the church, thank you. If it's to usher, we praise you. If it's to be on mission at work and to bring new people into the church to be saved, praise God. Whatever it may be, Lord, we ask that each person would find that unique calling that you've given them, that expression, that passion to contribute to the overall beauty and glory of our family, but ultimately the beauty and glory of God above, Lord, the one who reigns from above, who has a kingdom not of this world, Lord, but rules over this world. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.